Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Will Strong. I'm co-president of the board of Northwest Children's Fund. And welcome to our 12th annual forum. Uh, we're thrilled that so many of you have joined us for this important conversation on community trauma and child well-being. For those of you who are new to Northwest Children's Foundation, here's us in a nutshell. We got our start over three decades ago as a public foundation, which means we raise money from our community and invest it back in, specifically to break the intergenerational cycle of child abuse and neglect. We do this in, with two complementary programs. First is through our grants. We make strategic grants to agencies working on the front lines with children and families who deserve our support. Since 1986, we have invested over $17 million to over 300 agencies, and many of these partners in the room right now. Our second program area is educational outreach and convening, like this forum. We know, like you do, that there is power in bringing together a broad cross-section of the community like this to learn together, connect with each other, and build working relationships. Now, before we get the program underway, I wanted to share four useful tips for the day. First is the slides. So you'll be seeing a lot of slides in, this, in the presentations, and we will be providing them to you in an email after the event. So of course, feel free to take notes if you'd like, but know that you'll be getting the slides afterwards. Um, breaks, we're not going to have any formal breaks, um, but feel free to grab a cup of coffee in the foyer uh, or go through those doors. You'll see the restroom. And if you need to get up and stretch your legs, of course, uh, feel free to do so whenever you need it. Questions. If you have a question for our presenters, please use the question cards on the table. Write your question down, hold the card up like this, and one of our wonderful volunteers will um, come find you. Question, there's a question basket also in the back corner that you can use to submit your questions. Uh, for our web stream attendees, please feel free to submit your questions through the chat function. Um, and then our feedback surveys, they're very short, and we need every single one. Your feedback is really important. We use that um, to figure out the program for next year, so please submit those. If you include your contact information, you will be entered in a raffle and have a chance to win some really cool prizes, including Dr. Jinwright's book, a signed copy, and also two free tickets to next year's forum. Um, the feedback forms are in the programs on your tables. And for those of you online, you'll find the link to the survey on the Sessions tab. And finally, we couldn't put on a conference like this without our very generous sponsor, sponsors, and I'd like to give them a shout out right now. At the premier level, to Primera Blue Cross, a very special thank you, and the Thomas V. Giddens Jr. Foundation, thank you for your enduring support. At the benefactor level, our gratitude goes to Washington State Department of Children, Youth, and Families and Kaiser Permanente. At the leader level, Committee for Children, thank you, Joan Duffel and team. And at the patron level, thank you, Haggard Child Care Resources and Seattle Children's. Your par partnership means a lot. Thank you also to our volunteer sponsor, Heritage Bank, our media sponsor, Parent Map, and to our four webstream sponsors, Alaska Children's Trust, Wenatchee Valley Medical Group, Chuckanut Health Foundation, and Matsu Health Foundation. Thank you. 
And thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, now I have the pleasure of introducing the esteemed uh, Executive Director of Northwest Children's Foundation, Victoria Helm. Hello, hello. Thank you each and every one of you for joining us today. It's thrilling to see so many of us here together to think and talk about how we can create the optimum environment for all children to lead their best lives. This is a remarkable gathering. We're a very full room today, a sellout crowd at the Washington State Convention Center with hundreds more joining us by web stream. So, who's here today? Who is this community? Let's take a look. First, geographically, we have people here from across the US and even some from beyond. People from 116 communities in 22 states, from Alaska to Florida, from Maine to Hawaii. A special welcome to all of you joining us from out of town. Here's another illustration of who we are. We are over 900 individuals from more than 240 different organizations. We are teachers, parents, therapists, first responders, child-serving agencies, and we come from government, nonprofits, the medical and legal fields, foundations, universities, and more. This mix, this multidisciplinary nature of this gathering is really important. If we are to build an equitable future for all children to thrive, we've got to work together. We have to reach out beyond our everyday silos. It's vital that we build our collective knowledge, share our different perspectives, and develop connections across organizations, professions, and sectors. We believe, as I'm sure you do, in the very real power of collaboration. At Northwest Children's Foundation, as elsewhere, our work in ending the intergenerational cycle of child abuse and neglect has been strongly influenced by the groundbreaking research on adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. The ACEs research shows that child abuse and neglect, along with other trauma such as domestic violence, mental illness, and the incarceration of a parent, can lead to very high levels of stress in children. Toxic stress, affects brain development, increasing the risk for serious health and behavioral problems throughout life. The greater the number of ACEs one experiences, the higher the risk in adulthood for problems like homelessness, chronic unemployment, substance abuse, as well as the continued cycle of child abuse and neglect. For many years, the ACEs conversation has been focused on this individual or family trauma represented here by the leaves and branches of this tree image. What's been missing is the discussion of the other ACEs, adverse community environments represented here by the roots and soil. Adverse community environments include inequities like systemic discrimination, a lack of affordable and safe housing, community violence, poverty, and more. This tree illustrates the relationship between the adversity within a family and the adversity within a community. This dual approach, 
taking to account, into account both ACEs is the foundation of our discussion today. So here's a quick uh, note about today's program flow. We'll first hear from Seattle pediatrician and healthcare leader, Dr. Ben Danielson, and then from Dr. Sean Ginwright, our keynote speaker. Then we will move to an informal discussion, a panel discussion, and Q&A. At that point, Karen Andrews, principal of Interagency Academy, and Sheila Capistani, strategic advisor with King County's Best Starts for Kids, will be joining us. And now, the program that we've all been waiting for. Dr. Ben Danielson is someone who is well known in our community as an extraordinary pediatrician and community advocate. He experienced the foster care system as a young child and credits his amazing single mom for his appreciation for the value of education and a passion for advocacy. He's been affiliated with Harborview, Seattle Children's, and since the late 1990s has been the medical director of the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic. Dr. Danielson believes that health is more than healthcare, and any healthcare provider who strives to improve health must be active beyond the realm of their medical practice. As noted in the Seattle Times, quote, he pours his passion into improving the health and circumstances of low-income children and families, both inside and outside the clinic. I have the honor to present to you Dr. Ben Danielson. Very much. Good morning. Wow. I kind of wish every one of you could uh, stand up here for a moment and see this audience. It's such an honor to be among you. Some of you I know, and many of you are new faces to me. It makes me think that that's really um, one of the obvious and, and incredible strengths of the Northwest Children's Fund is that it, it has this capacity to bring so many different people together. I hope today, as you hear these conversations, as you're part of them, as you soak up this kind of energy that you're, um, you're kind of thinking about, not only how incredible it is to be around so many people, but also how incredible it is to be around people that you don't normally spend time with. And I'll take it one step further, and I hope you hear things that you don't normally hear, that you open yourself up to um, maybe embracing a bit of discomfort, being uncomfortable about things you hear, and then pondering them and thinking about them and considering them. I hope you'll even take it another step and think about this group as a network that you've created, thanks to Northwest Children's Fund, and that you will take the conversations that you hear today and expand them, continue them, continue them through the contacts that you'll uh, be receiving of everyone here and the opportunities that you have to sit in a cafe, in a space, and just continue to discuss these issues because they're not the kinds of things you figure out in a couple of hours with a couple of talking heads talking to you. It's the kind of thing that you, you live, you breathe, you take in, you consider, you challenge, you challenge yourself, and you continue on. Can you make that promise, that commitment? Because I think that's going to make this a meaningful day, at least. Thank you. All right, I get to ramble to you for a few minutes. Um, Last year, I had the honor of being here as well, and then uh, the organizers made the mistake of not deleting my name from this year's, um, so I get to be here too. I almost made a big mistake. I was uh, downstairs and about two-thirds of the way through my presentation and realized it was CanaCon, and uh, 
I thought people weren't quite as engaged as I thought they'd be, but <laughs> had lots of smiles and stuff, so it felt good. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about just how the, uh, some of the experiences I've seen have framed some of my thinking around these topics today, but I don't want them to be the, the framings that dominate your thinking because there's so many different ways to have these conversations and think about these issues. But I do, I just want to share a little bit of the way experiences in our lives shape our feelings, our thoughts, and our ideas about the world around us and who we are within it. I talked to a lot of students and um, folks who are entering into the healthcare field, and mostly what they want to hear is about the exciting ch technological changes that are coming to healthcare, how uh, things like CRISPR and the ability to paint cancer cells are just going to transform our ability to promote health and wellness, how there are going to be nanobots that will be crawling through our bodies fixing red blood cells, or maybe there'll be um, petri dish grown organs like livers that will help to fix us. And, um, those conversations are, are certainly exciting. Um, and my mind keeps falling back to who's going to have access to that incredible technology? Who's going to have those curative um, new ideas and uh, abilities? Uh, who will have the ability to kind of share in this incredible advancement in healthcare? And it makes me step back and think a little bit about how that's showing up for us today. This is. Uh, the clinic, the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic. I was clapping to myself when the name came up because I just love working there. I'm one of the few guys I know who uh, loves going to work every single day because I just have the best job in the world. I'm there in the clinic, um, and it is located right in the Central District. And these are two maps of uh, King County. The one that's on the left is the way poverty looked around the time that uh, actually I started back in the year 2000 in King County, with the darker being the more concentrated. The map on the other side is the way poverty looks in King County today. This change that you all know about is just sometimes worth seeing in its most graphic way to just understand that we are part of changing dynamic spaces around us, that the way we've defined community so easily in the past, the way we've talked about geographic barriers, naming a community is completely out the window now. And we have to think differently about how we define and how we think about community and how we respond to what a community is and needs. I think about uh, the neighborhood our clinic was started in, and when it was started back in 1970, it was 73% African American. Uh, this uh, was a prediction for what it would be in the year 2019 at the bottom. It's actually under 10% at this point. These are dynamic, big changes happening all around us all the time, and they inform this conversation about equity in important ways that we have to pull into context. I'm trained to be a physician. I think about health and health care, but I realized, in fact, I was taught by this amazing woman, Liz Thomas, this nurse practitioner, the first African-American nurse practitioner to graduate from the UW's uh, advanced practice school. Um, she was the one who taught me how to be a doctor. And the first days I uh, was at the clinic, she basically dragged me outside and um, I thought we were going to have a moment of staring at the wonderful edifice that is the clinic and talk about all the cool things we're going to do inside there. And no, she like grabbed me and turned me around. And she said, don't look at the clinic, look away from it. Look out into the community, because there is where you're going to do your real work and where you'll make a difference. You have to care about the kids you never see walking through your door just as much as they care about the kids you do. 
And that complicated things for me. It made me start to think more about like, well, how do I do that? How am I gonna be meaningful in that way? How am I gonna be part of a system that is so fragmented and pulled apart? And I thought about what it meant to promote wellness and I just start thinking about these, these mountainous areas of confusing and complicated factors all interacting to impact this idea of wellness or illness or health. It looks like, you know, a tip of the iceberg kind of picture. And as I've worked, I've started to think about this in more simplistic terms. What are the deepest, deepest roots of the things that impact the well-being of the youth that I take care of at the Odessa Brown Clinic in, here in Seattle? And I've boiled it down to three things that I wanted to talk about a little bit. Toxic capitalism, toxic oppression, and toxic stresses. So I wanted to start with toxic capitalism. And um, I will preface by saying, I used to call this toxic poverty. And I don't, I, don't, I don't wanna let us off the hook in that way anymore. Because, yeah. There's absolutely no reason why poverty should be a driver of illness except for the way that we construct our systems of capitalism in this country. And the way that we treat those who are impoverished, the way we uh, assume that that denigration is gonna to lead to poor health. We have to think about capitalism, not poverty, in these conversations. Capitalism looks like this. If you looked at uh, the country based on dollars, and dollars were equal to acres, this is the way this country would be divided, where 1% would own that big, big swath uh, up in the corner there. The last 40% would own that little red dot that might be Waco or something down in Texas. This is the way wealth is distributed in this country. This has important impacts on us as a country and us as individuals. The way we distribute wealth and its inequities drives persisting, persisting unjust um, access to resources and goods in this country. You look at what happens to a woman uh, relative to a man doing the same hours of work in the same job and where their salaries fall based on their race, and it's disgusting. It's a crime. It's a crime against humanity. You think about the issues of, black, of wealth, not just income, but wealth, how you can continue to support your family moving forward, how you carry through in generations. It's a tragedy. It's a crime. It's a crime against our societal values. The way we distribute wealth is so unequal. The gap between the rich and poor is so unequal that it is measurable and it is relatable to every issue of health. There are a couple of folks who did, epidemiologists in England who did some studies of wealth gap and how it impacted health. You wouldn't be surprised to see for every study they did that compared countries, that the USA was always the furthest to the right with the greatest wealth gap. And for every measurement of illness or wellness or well-being, they showed that the greater the wealth gap, the poorer the health, regardless of who you are in that country. This wealth gap matters, it especially matters across this country today where we no longer actually employ people in a way that allows them to have a living wage. Creating jobs, that simple trope that you hear on the news that is the solution to economic problems in this country is such a lie now because people don't have living wages, because we've allowed productivity in our, in our industries to increase but is not kept uh, track comparatively with the salaries that we pay people for that productivity. It is unjust is a crime against humanity and society. And Seattle is no different. We see Seattle sometimes as a place of opportunity and a great place of great, great philanthropy and contribution. But I think about that sometimes and I see 
Seattle can be characterized in so many other ways, too. It's the fifth whitest city in the country, right? Fifth whitest city in the country, still is. It also has several of the most diverse zip codes in the country. We are uh, an area of paradox here that is not unique to us. We're part of this country in this many different ways, but we have this paradoxical existence that we can either choose to see or choose not to see, and it shows itself especially brightly, I think, in this region. The issue of capitalism is really at the heart of how we're thinking about this issue of wealth and the wealth gap. And I can say that for sure because I work in this health field and I can tell you, and you know, that if we had a healthcare field that cared about health, we would not have this current type of healthcare system, would we? We would not, it's just honest. We would have a single-payer universal healthcare system that actually looked towards good health outcomes like every other sane country in this, in this world. We have a capitalistic healthcare system, so we actually have some of the worst health outcomes in the world and some of the greatest profits from a capitalistic perspective for a few people within it. Co toxic capitalism and its effect on well-being is at the root, the root, the root, of the experiences that I see in, in my community. Toxic capitalism. And then there's toxic stress. And you, in this group especially, have become really well steeped in these ideas of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, these list of things that the more you have, the worse chances you are to be well. And how, as they increase, every measurable part of health is affected by them. It's an important set of important events in a child's life that can impact their health forever. There's other kinds of stresses also, though. There's this trickle of stress that happens every single day. It's not a big event. It's the constant little trickle of stress that creates constant trickles of stress hormones that slowly erodes every functional part of your body, every organ system um, across, across your lifespan. This constant trickle, which is different than ACEs, but has a very measurable and understandable impact on your health, is something you have to think about when we talk about this issue of well-being. We can't uniformly just talk about ACEs in individuals. And I've also come to think more about this other thing, which is just my own um, construct, so you can't look this up anywhere, um, but <laughs> bear with me. <laughs> I was down in Canacon, I was just thinking about it, and <laughs> I think there's this other piece, um, which I think of event stress and uncertainty stress key moments in your life when something happens, and it could be the mildest thing in the world, and yet it leaves you with this idea that something is wrong and it's eventually gonna show itself up. Something eroding at your sense of your own well-being. I think pregnancy and birth is one of the key moments when that can happen. And I see so many times in our clinic this these experiences where a very little thing that a doctor might completely ignore, a little bit of breathing trouble, an unplanned C-section, and boy, do we have a lot of C-sections in this country. Um, a little bit of a stress about a child's well-being from birth that lends itself to thinking this child is sick and something bad is gonna happen sooner or later. That kind of stress is a stress that we also need to talk about in the construct of families and family experiences when we're talking about issues of health and equity. And we have to talk about the organisms that are communities, that are groups of people working together. What is the community stress and experience? This is just. Sorry for this, this is uh, one of the set of public health maps for King County showing different areas of health outcomes. And my stupid joke is 
that it's the easiest job in the world to be a cartographer in King County about health because all you have to do is use the same picture and change the label and you're pretty much accurate about everything from diabetes to tobacco use to life expectancy. It's an easy job because the community well-being, the community stress, the community trauma, the community strengths, those experiences are so universally shared, almost irrespective of a person's individual set of attributes, assets, or traumas. These are the kinds of stresses that impact the community that I serve. These are at the root of toxic stresses. Toxic oppression, the way in which groups of people have been treated, denigrated, dishonored across this country. We sit here today on the stolen land of the Duwamish. We must honor that and recognize that, but we also should be ashamed Ashamed for that experience because it's a co-opting just as much as it is a co-opting of putting a, an image on a football helmet for our entertainment or for treating uh, people as if they have no language, no names, no identities, separating them from their families and putting them into, into huge re-education schools like this, or maybe today separating mothers from their children at borders and putting them into spaces as if they're prisoners. These are, clap louder, because that's a really important. <laughs> That was pandering, straight up, I'm sorry. Um, but it's for this point. We have to be thinking about these issues in their full context and the full experiences of them, not just today, but the generational effects and the impacts we've seen. We have to think about how we've chosen to isolate ourselves or chosen to think about ourselves in groups and how in some ways that has furthered the idea that we are not like each other that we are not on the same journey together and that we aren't having shared experiences, that somehow my issues are at the expense of your issues, your gains mean I have uh, deficits. There's a, a oneness that we have to consider even as we champion our, our identity, our pride, our sense of who we are, our cultural heritage, and the way that we celebrate that. These are the things that we need to think about because they have such tangible impacts on health. Every 10 years ago or so, there's a study of pain medication in ERs for kids where they look at a million kids and they see if you have uh, appendicitis, what's the chance that you're gonna get adequate pain medication? A million kids across this country in ERs everywhere, including ours, including the one that I work for. Um, and the chance of getting pain medication is 80% less if your skin is black. Same pain, same illnesses, different treatment. These are the things that we need to understand and study because these are not issues that are just theoretical or in the air or in the past or in some other place that's not ours. This is us. This is us. We have to think about these issues because they are so important, especially at those key moments in life. Um, this is maybe one of the best articles describing both the data and the stories and experiences uh, of what it means to be an American black woman having a child today. So if you have a chance to look back to April of last year and look at that article, I would, I would, I would throw this into recommended reading for any class that was covering this topic. And these are important issues and they touch our lives, not just the African-American lives, but across our country. We're the only developed country that is having an increase in maternal, maternal mortality, an increase that's pretty dramatically different from everyone else across this world. These are the issues that we talk about and we think about. These are the things that have been historically part of our world. And it makes me think also about how I participate in these thoughts and conversations. I think about um, these amazing women that uh, made up the history of the Odessa Brown Clinic 
and the lower left over there is Odessa Brown herself, a single mom, a community activist, a strong, oh, my mom would have loved Odessa Brown. <laughs> Spoke her mind, she knew what, she, what was right, and she raised her kids to think about something different. The middle one is uh, Blanche Lavizo, the first African-American pediatrician in the Northwest area who started our clinic with this idea that you deserve quality care and dignity. Can't just think about the technical parts of care, you have to think about the components of dignity that make up what it means to be a human in this society. Liz Thomas is that upper one, the one that taught me uh, how to be a doctor. I speak of them all the time in these very glowing terms and I realized something maybe six months ago that I felt like I was doing them a disservice. I spoke of their, their, their leadership, their strength. I, I talked a lot about their resilience and how they did this hard work and somehow managed to be these incredible leaders at the same time and how much work that they put into that. And then I started to think about it and I had to come to a really important realization. Odessa Brown, she died too young of cervical cancer, advanced cancer that was untreated, untreatable. Dr. Blanche Lavizo, she died too young of breast cancer. Liz Thomas died too young of kidney cancer. Our clinic is right next to another clinic called Carolyn Downs Family Medicine Clinic. It's actually the last um, Black Panther clinic in the nation. Really important point of pride for this area. Carolyn Downs herself died too young of cancer. We talk about resilience, we talk about sort of iconography when we think about uh, great people like this. Sometimes you think about that in the way you think about the communities of color, even though oh, the resilience within that, wow, an amazing sense of the ability to transcend hardship. I think that sells a story short. I want you to think about that word resilience. You may come to the same conclusion you've had before, that it's a wonderful word and it means a lot to you. I want you to consider that it might be a microaggression. I want you to consider that it might reflect um, how someone is in a state of great adversity, and in a way might almost say that adversity doesn't matter, it's the resilience that does matter in that. I want you to think about words like resilience and other concepts in our lives that sometimes, with our own best intentions, my own best intentions, actually bring our conversation backwards rather than forwards. I did the same thing with um, racism. I used to talk so much about differences in health based on race, or different healthcare outcomes that are based on race. And then I realized, okay, Sheila taught me this, but I realized partly also on my own but, <laughs> that these are differences based on racism, not race, right? This is racism acting, not race. They're not the biologic differences in race that should have those health outcomes. We should change our language to really talk about differences in health and well-being based on racism and not be afraid to use that word because that's the word that matters in that conversation. Does that make sense? Resilience is this, a beautiful flower in some abjectly deprived environment. That's not the strength that Odessa Brown or Liz Thomas had. They had strengths that were well beyond that, strengths that were abject positive, strengths that could teach everyone in this room something that would make their lives better, not just the ability to bloom in adversity. I think about these things that make you have to rethink what you're doing and what you're talking about. I think about this issue that comes up so much in public health, right? And in medicine and in, and in anybody who's ever written a grant. This idea of moving a needle. 
this ask for you to move the needle within some short time, I want you to think about that concept. I want someone to be brave enough to say, I am sorry, ooh, who should I offend? <laughs> Casey Foundation, I don't know, uh, I am sorry. I am not going to write for a grant that tells me to move the needle within a short time. Do you know what I think moving the needle does? I think moving the needle makes the, those who are the least disenfranchised, the most able to take advantage of an inter, of a intervention and move themselves up very quickly into a place where they are, have more agency. I think it actually leaves the bulk of the people that you care the most about further behind. It widens the gap. We see this in the data all the time. Improvements that widen gaps. I think this is the evil specter that is actually at the root of that. I want you to rethink the way we talk about improvement and moving the needle on what we count as tangible. I am looking forward to the day, I'm gonna be really proud when I can stand here in front of you and say, I have this new measure, and it's called potential energy. It's not the measured thing that you wanted to see happen within six months of receiving your money, it's, it's a potential energy. It's the strength that happened within a community. It was the ability of that community to, to name their own future, their own path, because we invested in them. That's different than moving the needle. I want us to think about things that make us passive about the future. There's this whole thing about by some year, we are gonna not be any majority culture. We're gonna hit this 50% line, and suddenly, magically, the rainbow will just continue to shine, and everything is gonna be even and equal and equitable and wonderful after that. That is a full-on lie, you know that, right? <laughs> I'm sure somebody smarter than me could name 10 or 20 countries where a tiny minority has a horrible hold on power and harms a huge majority of people. There's nothing numerically fancy or special, so don't let someone like me stand in front of you and say, not too long from now, you just wait. You don't have to do anything today. Just hang out for a while, because pretty soon, there's gonna be a different numerical thing, and then it's, everybody's gonna treat everybody different. That's not the way the world has worked. I wouldn't expect that to work here. We have to fight this sense of apathy this desire to sort of sit in this space and hope with our kindness and our passivity that something good is gonna happen and then we can wake up and enter a world that's better. We have to challenge ourselves to push harder, to do something that makes us uncomfortable in order to change, because change really feeds on comfort. Uh, sorry, stability feeds on comfort. Change feeds on discomfort. I think about how to push a bar, how to take a term that might feel comfortable before, like equity. Let's just say equity is treating everybody fair or giving people what they need. Let's change that definition on its head and think about it in a more uncomfortable way. Equity is something that is named by those who are most affected, by the communities themselves, not by you. Equity demands sacrifice and sharing, redistributing power. Northwest Children's Fund, by fundraising, is trying to do that directly, but we have to be more aggressive about changing power structures. We need to break systems of racism. We need to focus on healing, something you'll hear Dr. Jin Wright talk a lot about, what it means to actually heal, because I fervently believe we could do all the good work from here moving forward in the present and in the future, and if we have not promoted healing, we will not make a difference. Let's think more challengingly, in a way that scares us a little bit, about the concepts that we've become comfortable with, like equity. Equity is disruptive, it's supposed to be uncomfortable, and it's the only way you're going to get to a better future. 
I think about these things and how you can actually state what you mean when you mean it, how you can create a space. A year or so ago in our clinic, we decided we had to say very clearly what we mean when we say our families that come here are safe here. Not, not legal language, not fancy doctor talk, but that this place is a sanctuary and you are safe here. If your space has a statement about sanctuary, but it is so clouded in legalese that you know the people who you're actually speaking to will not understand what you're saying, you have not done them anything, none, no justice. You've helped yourself feel a little bit better. You've not helped them. Think about the words that we use and how we use them today and how we can change their meaning into something that is actually actionable. I think about these things and the ways in which we have to reframe what it means to be an American, what it means to be part of this country and this culture, and what it means to be beside people who don't look like us or think like us or act like us and are so much, we are so much the better because of it. We the people. We the people, not some accumulation of labels and titles and things that we want to categorize ourselves by, but we the people. We the people is this beautiful tapestry. This is my shameful sharing of my mom's quilt work with you. <laughs> but that's a huge king size, like that size quilt. And <laughs> awesome. I'm going to tell my mom she got a really big clap from, and it wasn't Canacon, although she'd probably be downstairs. Um, think about what it really means to be a tapestry that makes up a person, that makes up a community, makes up a society in this world. My work, I am sometimes too close, too close to that quilt. All I see is one of those squares, which is pretty enough, and I don't step back enough. So back enough and see what I'm saying, see what I'm doing, question how I'm looking at things. I don't step back enough and get a perspective on this work. Thanks, Mom. Think about how we talk about experiences and service and the communities that we work with. Think about whose story you are telling and who gets to tell that story. Not just because it's respectful for a child to be able to tell their own story, or respectful for a parent to be able to name their own story. Not even just because it is uh, a fundamental to that statement of equity that the post person most affected gets to name what happens and what happened. Not even just because I think it is one of the greatest tools towards healing. It's also because there's something very pragmatic about it that Plato said, and I think that that is absolutely true. Stories are power. We have to think about whose power we are co-opting and whose power we are sharing. Think about these cycles that make up not individuals and not even just communities, but generations and how people are connected. Um, I also, I will spare you my goofy joke about this, and I will just say that what I understand now as a pediatrician is that that child is such a product of not just a mother, but generations of people. That in fact, half of the DNA that went into making that child that I get to see in the clinic was actually not made by mom, but was made by grandma. Remember that grandma when she made the body and the eggs that existed in mom? Mom was born with all the eggs that she'll ever have. She didn't make them new. And those eggs, be those eggs became half of the DNA for this child. Think about the generational, blow your mind with a simple truth, understand generations beyond you, do a little time traveling. Think about how those impact the way we talk about equity and investment. If that baby gets to grow up and have wonderful experiences while she's making the eggs that might make her grandchild, what would that do for the generations of impact based on the work that you do today? I think about those things because I see this every day. 
So whenever I get like kind of, I don't know, I think I was a little grumpy this morning when I was talking to the other panelists and I was kind of like, ah oh, man, this works hard and I get tired so I don't want to have to be like broad-minded. And then <laughs> I think about where I get to work every day and the faces I see and all I see in that is promise and potential and strength and anything that encourages that is the right thing to do and anything that gets in the way of that is the wrong thing to do. I feel like that baby's kind of challenging us a little bit too, right? You better think about that. Think about how that encourages you to unlearn and change the things that frame the way you thought the world was structured and what it meant. Encourage yourself to unlearn. Unlearning is as important, maybe more important than learning because it creates the capacity for you to be open to new ideas and new things. Think about how you could actively unlearn. We the people. This is goofy to show this, and it probably bends towards my patriotic side a bit, but I do notice that We the People was written in ginormous font compared to every other word in that important document, and I think it meant something. It meant that this is about us, We the People, that We the People name what should and could and would be done to make this a better country. We the People are the most important, the most prominent, the most, the most visible part of this whole contract, we the people. I hope we think about what that means and what incredible onus responsibility that puts on us to be the agents of change, the supporters of change, or the get out of the wayers, I think is a word, of change that we need to be in order to help this be a better society. Because this society is not monolithic or monocultural, it is one that is beautiful. It is beautiful like the waiting room in the clinic that I get to work in every day. It's, it's beautiful like this room is beautiful. It is multi-layered and multi-complexed. There's no easy answers, no straight up, one directional way to think about this. And that's what makes it powerful. Think about doing the work because it should be the work, not because you're gonna get some fancy award or some high recognition for change or something. Think about these things as we talk today. Make it part of your mind and your contemplation and build that into the way you structure your questions, your conversations, how you ask yourself important questions. Because <laughs> it's important. <laughs> it's important. These small people are so counting on you and are hoping for you to be part of the change that they need to see. And because what I see every day in the community I serve are these amazing little geniuses. And I hope that will carry something in your heart and in your heads as you hear the rest of this conversation today because that's what it's all about if you're a pediatrician at least. Thank you very much for listening to me. Now I have the incredible honor of introducing and welcoming our main guest speaker today. This is a, an incredible treat. I'm a great, big fan of his and I've only become more an admirer as we've talked a little bit this morning. Dr. Sean Ginwright hails from the Bay Area and is an associate professor of education in the African Studies Department at San Francisco State. He's the leading expert on Amer African American youth and youth activism. He authored a book titled, 
Hope and Healing in Urban Education, How Activists and Teachers Are Reclaiming Matters of the Heart. He's also the CEO of Flourish Agenda, a social impact, um, sorry, a social impact company that supports schools and community organizations with building healthy school climates. Dr. Ginwright was awarded the prestigious Fulbright Senior Specialist Award for his research and work with urban youth, and you know none of that matters for him. He is here from a very special place. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sean Ginwright. I want to say thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Ben. You are the Steph Curry of <laughs> medicine. Uh, thank you. Uh, um, it's always, uh, it's always a, a pleasure to come to Seattle. Um, one of the first things I notice, because I live in Oakland, California, uh, my wife and I were walking downtown, and the city's so clean. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's just wonderful to be in this environment. And I, you know, I've had an opportunity to travel to different cities and, and share ideas about healing. And one of the things that I'm recognizing and healing is a yearning for those who work deeply with young people across our country, a yearning for another way to heal the harm that young, many young people are facing in their neighborhoods, in their communities, and schools. I'm hearing a yearning for another way to address ACEs and to support young people by saturating their lives with opportunities to heal. And so I want to be able to share with you today some of those lessons that I've learned from teachers who, are, who work in very difficult neighborhoods throughout our country, from youth workers who deal with trauma on a daily basis in New York, um, from social workers who have to deal with young people around the, uh, in their neighborhoods they're bringing to their, their centers and in their homes uh, various forms of trauma that they sometimes are not equipped to deal with. I also know that the systems that we have in our society, that we cannot think about trauma only as an individual actor, in, only impacting individuals, but sometimes the very systems that we're in are traumatized. The schools carry trauma. The social services carry trauma. And sometimes even police departments carry trauma. And if we don't have a robust and a courageous way to provide healing strategies, then we continue to reproduce the inequality that we have in our society. So I want to say thank you again, brother, for those, those, those profound words. And, and I hope that to, to build from um, some of the concepts that we just, ha that we just heard. There's two things I want to say before I sort of go into the presentation. And that is, I think sometimes in our society, we get so close to our work. We get so engaged and so passionate in our work that we, uh, we, we tend to adopt and um, believe that we can engage and remedial social change. That is, that we are so focused on problem solving, that we're so focused on reducing the misery, that we don't, have to, we don't develop an imagination and a dream and a hope to actually create new kinds of opportunities. And so when we focus only on the reduction of violence, we never think about how to increase peace. 
When we focus on the reduction of illness, we never focus on how to build hope. And so I think what I hope you leave with in some of the concepts that I'm going to share with you today is not just um, an understanding of the challenges that we face, the ways in which trauma embeds itself in individuals, the way in which it embeds itself in, 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 in our relationships and the ways it embeds itself in institutions, but really a profound way to push us more courageously to think about healing strategies for our own lives and for the lives of the young people that we care deeply about. I um, have, a, uh, have an opportunity to, um, I was just talking to um, Dr. Ben as we were walking into the, the, the auditorium, and as a professor at San Francisco State University, um, I have an opportunity to test ideas with my graduate students like every week. And, um, you know, a few years ago, um, I began to talk about healing. And I also began to think that the ideas are bigger than academics, right? There are people that are working in the lives of, of, of uh, young people around the country that are yearning for these tools. I know that my own training as a youth development professional, um, when I worked in uh, Oakland, California, in San Diego, we used to call what we did youth development, and we used to call it uh, leadership development, and we used to call it all kinds of things, but over the past 20 years in my work with young people in communities, what I, what I, what I really realized is that development is, means nothing without healing. And that young people, sometimes, if we, if we think of our work only as um, developing young people, that we forget that it is the healing process that actually transforms their lives. And also, uh, the second point that I want to make today is that there's a way in which we're trained as professionals, as social workers and therapists and doctors and physicians, and that we believe that our engagement with young people is a one-way street. That is, that that young person has trauma and I can support them with their trauma. And I think that's a wrong framework because what we also have to do is think about the trauma that we have in us, right? That just because we're adults doesn't mean that we are fixed, that we are somehow immune from the systems that have been toxic in our lives. And that if we're not engaged in a pro process of healing, we give it to young people as well. So this is a bilateral process, y'all, right? That our ability to be well translates to our ability to help young people be well. But if, as soon as we think that I'm gonna save young people, that I'm gonna heal this young person without deep introspection about who we are and the ways in which trauma embeds in us, then we've also reproduced inequality. My wife always teases me, she says, all these ideas came from me. She's right. <laughs> She's right. She's right there. One night over dinner, one night over dinner, um, we were talking about the necessity for our society and the work that we do um, in training people who work with young people as to have uh, what she called a lens and a mirror. And most of the time, we're trained as professionals to have a lens on society. That is, that we can name racism and homophobia and classism, and, which is necessary. We need a lens to understand the conditions of society, but we also need a mirror. And the mirror allows us to have deep reflection about the ways in which toxicity influences us, 
but also a mirror allows us to reimagine our lives and reimagine our engagement with young people. And so I hope some of these ideas that I share with you today pushes us and pushes us to reconsider and reimagine uh, the work that we do. Um, I want to start with a story. Um, about five years ago, I um, completed a book called Black Youth Rising, which is about African-American men, uh, young men in Oakland, California. And it was about the transformation of their lives and the supports that were necessary in their community-based organizations to support those young men in their transformation. And somehow my book ended up uh, in a reading circle with a group of men in prison. And so I got an email that read something like this. It said, Dr. Jenright, um, there are 10 men here in prison that have gotten, that have you know, read your book, Black Youth Rising, and we'd love it if you could come out and speak to them. And I had debated whether or not I would take the invitation. And so on, it was on a Saturday morning, so I, I got an excuse for my wife to go out. I didn't have to do the honeydews that day. So I went out to the prison, and I, you know, I said I'd, I'd be happy to, to, to share the ideas. And I had prepared a, you know, kind of my comments about my research and how the book came about. And at the prison, I don't know if you've ever been to a prison, but in California, there are certain ways you have to, clothes you have to wear in a the prison. They said, don't wear jeans, don't wear these colors, and so on and so forth, and make sure you have your ID. So when I got to the prison, I went up to the gate, and the correctional officer said, uh, Dr. Jenright, we're glad you're here. Uh, the men are in the cafeteria. They're waiting for you. Um, they're excited. Um, the cafeteria is a little tricky to get to, but just following the instructions when you pass through the gate, and the, uh, the remaining correctional officers will guide you to the cafeteria. So as I entered the gate, the first correctional officer said, there's a red line on the floor, and there's a bunch of lines with different colors. Just follow that red line all the way to the end of the corridor. So I followed that line all the way to the end of the corridor where I was met with a door. And that door buzzed open, bzzz, and I walked through it, and the door shut behind me, boom. There was another correctional officer at the other side of that door, and she said, Dr. Jenright, um, I know you're going to the cafeteria. Just find the green line on the floor and follow this green line to the end of the corridor. So I looked on the floor and I followed the, looked at the green line and I followed that green line all the way to the end of that long corridor where I was met with a door and that door buzzed open, bzzz, and I walked through it and it shut behind me, boom. As you, as you know, there was another correctional officer. You're almost to the cafeteria, Dr. Jenright. Just find a, there's a blue line on the floor, just follow this one all the way to the end of that corridor and you'll be near the cafeteria. So I found the blue line, and I followed it all the way to the end of the corridor. That door buzzed open, bzzz, and I walked through it, and it shut behind me. Boom. But by the time that third door shut, something shifted inside of me. I began to feel the sense of incarceration. I began to feel captured and enclosed and I began to imagine what these men who I was about to talk to feel every day. And I became deeply insecure. I didn't know what to say to them. I knew that I began to imagine that they couldn't feel the sun on their faces, they couldn't embrace their children. And so what I, the, the comments that I had prepared, I immediately threw them away because I began to feel insecure and vulnerable, like what can I say to these men that could actually make a difference? 
And so whatever comments I had, I decided that I wasn't going to talk about that. And so as I entered or got close to the cafeteria, they opened the door to the cafeteria. And I had anticipated the 10 men waiting for me. But when they opened the double doors, I was shocked at what I saw. Rather than 10 men waiting for me, there were 200 men in their orange jumpsuits, all excited to see me. I was like, wow, I wish I would have told me there's 200 <laughs> people here. And they were excited to see me. They, one of them walked up to me. His name was Greg. He said, Dr. G, man, I'm, uh, I'm glad you're here, man. We, I'm one of the brothers that read your book. And man, I'm just glad you're here. I'm, I've been here since 1987. And my heart sank. And then Chris walked up to me. Hey, Dr. Jen Wright, I didn't actually read your book, but I'm glad you're here. I've been in here since 1989. And one by one, they came up to me and told me their name and the year they had entered that prison. And I began to be more and more and more insecure about what I was going to tell these men, because certainly I wasn't going to talk to them about my research. And so they ushered me up onto the stage. And rather than me referring to my research and the, how I wrote the book, I just spoke from my heart, y'all. And I just told them about my concerns and challenges that I was experiencing raising a 15-year-old son in Oakland, California, because he's six foot three, and I'm afraid of his safety. I just talked about the challenges and the concerns I have because my parents are aging. And I just talked to them for 45 minutes from my heart. And I told them at the end of my comments that no matter what you did that brought you here, there's always a possibility of healing. And that you are not what brought you here. You're more than that. And I said a few more things and a few more comments. And by the time I was done, the, uh, the correctional officer said, OK, it's time for them to go back to their cells. And so they were ushering the men back to their cells. And they were ushering me out, out, of the, out of the cafeteria when I heard this loud, booming voice behind me. Hey, Dr. G. And it's a true story. Uh, this is a tall brother, man. He must have been seven feet tall, 300 pounds. And I was like, what's up, bruh? <laughs> and he said, hey, man, I just want to let you know, Dr. G, that those words you shared with, with us, they really touched me, man. They, you spoke from your heart, and they, you talked about healing, and it, it just really helped me. And I said, that's good, man. I'm glad whatever I said was useful for you. He said, no, I really want you to hear me. You see, because I'm so tall, right, people think I'm a threat in here. They always pushed me to fight. And a few years ago, I got in a fight in here, and they cut me in the face. He had leaned down, and he had a scar across his face. And I said, man, I'm so sorry to, so sorry to hear that. And he said, but you know, there's, there's something that you said that there's always a possibility of healing, even in, in places like this. That resonated with me, because there's something that I do every single day that allows me to heal. And I'm like, what is it that you do? And he, he reached into his pocket. And I was like, oh. What are you doing? <laughs> the correctional officer said, hey, man, it's cool. And he reached into his pocket, and he pulled out a little bottle. And he opened the bottle, and he blew bubbles. And the bubbles floated over my head. And my first thought was, did this big brother just blow bubbles in my face <laughs> in prison? And he said, 
I blow bubbles, man, because it reminds me when I was a child. It reminds me, it heals me because my father used to bring me to the park. And so when I blow these bubbles, it helps me heal in a difficult place like this. There's something that I need to do every day to endure, to hope, to dream, and to heal. And so thank you. And so as I drove home that night, that afternoon, I, I heard his voice echoing in my head that these bubbles heal me. And I began to be really curious about what are our bubble stories? How do, what do we do every day to promote healing for ourselves and for the young people that we care about? How do people who love children and young people, how do they create healing in really difficult situations and contexts? And so I became deeply curious about healing stories, about the context of racism and poverty, but also the courageous acts it takes to actually saturate young people's lives with healing opportunities. And so as I began to do research, um, the first thing I recognized is that there are challenges to healing, that healing is not always easy. And in the book that I wrote on this topic called Hope and Healing in Urban Education, the first thing I do is begin to document well, what are some of the challenges to healing? And we've already heard some of those challenges of racism and poverty, that these things are not just structural, but they have an impact on our well-being. And one of the concepts that you've already heard um, today about toxicity, this work, this research comes from James Gabarino in a book called Raising Children in a Socially Toxic Environment. And similar to what you heard about capitalist toxicity, right, and the other forms of toxicity, what James Gabarino says is that, you know, there are two kinds of toxicities that we have in our society. There are physical toxins, and those are things that are like asbestos and lead paint. And if you're exposed, if you think about asbestos and lead paint in your home, your apartment, or even in your work, if you're exposed to that physical toxin, that over time, that physical toxin will make you ill. And if you're not healed from that exposure to that physical toxins, like asbestos and lead paint, if you're not healed from it, it could become lethal. Well, James Gabarino says that there are social equivalents to physical toxins. And social toxins are just as deadly or lethal. And social toxins are things like fear, anxiety, stress, insecurity, shame. And those things are just as present in our environment as physical toxins. But oftentimes, we are only able to, to focus on and understand we misdiagnose the root of the problem. And so he, he offers a way for us to then frame the kind of challenges or the, and some of the causes that actually make healing more difficult. Here's an example of social toxins. You probably remember the summer of 2015 and 2016, and, and it still continues with Freddie Gray and, all, and Oscar Grant. And I remember that, I remember the, that summer of 15 and 16 when, Af when uh, African-American young men were being hunted by police, and police officers will, be sh will shoot young men. I remember my son leaving the house at 15 with his hoodie on, with his friends in Oakland, California at 8 o'clock at night, being concerned over his safety social toxicity. Here's another form of social toxins, that we have uh, uh, um, policies 
what's happening with children being separated from their families, right? Uh, immigrant families who are being uh, characterized as criminals is a form of social toxins that this characterization is, re is uh, encouraging families not to take their children to the doctor, not to take them to get a dental appointment, and sometimes removing them from school for fear of deportation. So all of these are forms of, of social toxins that are just as present in our environment that we have to name and identify. And our naming and identify allows us forced to then understand some of the challenges to healing. So how does this work, and how does uh, the social conditions and social toxins in our systems have an influence on our lives and our bodies. This is an illustration that I think is a, is, a, is a way to sort of think about social toxins and the way that they actually shape our lives. This is a picture of, let's call her Mia. And Mia is a social worker who deeply cares about children and is working in communities and working to support the transformation of young people's lives. But what Mia doesn't understand is that the neighborhood and the schools she works in also is saturated with social toxicity. And social toxins are like rain clouds. And unlike regular rain that sort of wets us up, social toxins get inside of us. Racism, homophobia, classism, poverty have a toxic impact on our inside well-being. And sometimes we're unaware that they're located in our psychology. They're located in our bodies. Now, Mia doesn't know this, and so what happens is Mia becomes frustrated from her exposure to social toxins. It has an impact at the individual level. Social toxins also have an impact at the interpersonal level, the relationships that she has with her coworkers, the relationships we have with other young people, the relationships we have with parents. But also, social toxins have an impact at the institutional level. And those social toxins influence the values, the practices and the policies of that institution. And the institution itself then, because of its exposure, then produces more social toxins that go back out into society, and it reproduces itself. So our job as social workers and therapists and teachers and educators is to disrupt this process, that we understand the ways in which inequality gets reproduced, but our job is to understand the ways in which it situates itself at the individual level, the interpersonal level, and at the institutional level. And when we do that, we begin to then, um, we begin to shift our diagnosis from what are symptomatic behaviors. Violent behavior, fatalism, depression and anxiety are all symptoms of, much, of something that's much more fundamental. And so as a, as a matter of fact, in schools, for example, most teachers are trained to deal with exposure to social toxins with one tool, discipline, right? So if there's violent behavior or fatalism or anxiety or something that shows up in a classroom that looks like non-compliant behavior, what we're trained in education is to say, let's treat that with discipline. Discipline is the cure-all for something that's not right in my classroom, right? And we know that that is actually harmful to young people. And it reproduces harm for young people. And so teachers, I think, like physicians, need to get more curious about what's happening in young people's lives to have a more accurate diagnosis about what's going on. 
and we need to train teachers to have an ability to understand the exposure to inequality, suffering, and structural racism, right? To deal with that is not just to provide an awareness that it happens, but to provide pathways for young people to heal from it. We have to begin to retrain our workforce, our workforce in a way that doesn't see a myopic understanding of young people's behavior, but has a broader view of the structural realities that create suffering in young people's lives. I was, had the opportunity about three years ago uh, to work with a group of uh, 15 African-American boys in Oakland. And I was trained myself in trauma-informed care and had worked with young people for a, a long time. And during one night, on a Wednesday night, we would meet at a community college. We were sitting in our blue chairs eating pizza. And I was having, talking about the impact of trauma and toxic stress on their decision making. And so I was asking them to retell and revisit and be, and, and be open and honest about the thing that happened to them. And they had an enormous stories of trauma from homelessness to sexual abuse to violence, all the kinds of trauma that you could imagine showed up in these young people. And I'm gonna go off script for just a moment because I feel like I'm at home, <laughs> y'all family. Um, we need to, um, in, in terms of language, we use this term post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a misdiagnosis because there's nothing post about the trauma that young people experience. We, we also call it a disorder which locates trauma in the individual, and we know that trauma doesn't exist just in the individual. And I prefer the term persistent traumatic stress environment, PTSD, because it allows us to take a, greater, uh, a more holistic lens about the issues and the challenges that create trauma in the first place. Now, that was off script. I wasn't, that's not part of my slide. So with that said, we were talking, having this healing conversation, and one of the young men said in the group, man, I'm tired of talking about this, Dr. G. He said, I'm more than what happened to me. I'm not just my trauma. And I thought he was just being a jokester. I'm like, man, you're always throwing, uh, 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 you're always throwing a curveball in my healing circles. <laughs> and he said it again, and one of the other young men said, yeah, man, I want to talk about how I want to open up, um, I want to open up an um, a, 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 a auto repair shop. He loved working on cars. And another young man said, yeah, man, you know, I want to talk about uh, me becoming a technician to, to network computers. They began to talk about their dreams, not their trauma. And so I began to really think about my own understanding of trauma-informed care, right? And as I reread the literature and the research, I began to come up with their questions, not mine, about some of the shortcomings and limitations about the ways in which we think about trauma and the, and the ways in which it actually situates in the, young, in the lives of young people. And so in the article that you may have read called uh, Shifting from Trauma-Informed Care to Healing-Centered Engagement, some people misread that article to say, we need to abandon trauma-informed care. And I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is that trauma-informed care is, is important, but it's incomplete. And it's incomplete because, one, 
There's a way in which we think about trauma as an individual experience versus a collective experience. I could talk to African-American, Latino young boys who are 16 years old in Seattle, and they'll have the same story about the police that the young men will have in Chicago. This is a collective experience, and so when we think about trauma, we can't think of it as only an individual act. Second, that our, our, a way in which we think about trauma-informed care fails to address the root causes of trauma in the first place. That trauma is systemic. That trauma is not something that accidentally happens to you, but trauma is a result of, of, uh, it's a result of political decisions, about lack of investments, about structural inequality. Third, that trauma tends to focus on coping rather than healing. Let me allow you to think about ways to decompensate, ways to navigate your stress, right? It, talks, it doesn't get at the root cause, which is healing from our exposure to these forms of inequality. So when we talk about trauma-informed care, I argue that we need to shift to a framework that gives it a much more holistic understanding, which we call healing-centered engagement. And healing-centered engagement allows us to have a greater view, a greater gaze at the structural inequality that situates itself for young people, but also for ourselves. And so when we talk about shifting to a healing-centered engagement, there are a few principles. The first is that healing-centered engagement is explicitly political rather than clinical. Right? Explicitly political rather than clinical. And this basically means that we have to have a political understanding of inequality and well-being. That young people's trauma is not just a focus of an accident. Political, uh, explicitly political means that when we engage and have an understanding of the things that harm us, right, that our well-being is connected to much more than, our, than just genetics or decisions, right? Second, healing-centered engagement is culturally grounded and views healing as the restoration of our identity. A friend of mine in California, his name is Jerry Teo, he says, la cultura cura. The culture cures, right? And so this means that we have two things to, to ponder. One, that many ways, that in many ways where our identities our identities are the re reasons why we're harmed in our society. If your race, your gendered identity, GLBT communities, their identities are those that are under, are, are the ones that are under attack. And culture means that sometimes a cure is in the culture. My mama used to say, the blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice. Now, that was a term that she would use over and over again, and I didn't know at the time, and not until I got to college, right, what she meant by that. She was providing me an antidote for internalized racism, right? So that when we, we embrace ourselves and situate ourselves in our culture, what we discover is that there's cures there and that our cures need to be much more explicit in our treatments, our cures need to be much more explicit in our strategies, and our cures need to be much more explicit in our understanding of what's possible. Third, healing-centered engagement is asset-driven and focuses on the well-being we want rather than symptoms we want to suppress. And so this suggests that we have to look at communities who've been exposed to trauma, not as some kind of broken condition, 
right? Not some kind of deficit condition, but communities, right? As Sheila talked about earlier today in our conversation before, that our communities have strengths for centuries and years. And that if we only think about the brokenness of our communities, that we don't actually get at the assets. And so we have to view the assets of our communities as a part of the strategy. I was having this conversation um, um, uh, uh, last month with public health officials, and I, and I was talking about the example in the black community. Every brother usually knows where the black barbershops are. That's where we go get our hair cut, right? And I was explaining that there was this process where there, that's an asset in our community. And what would it look like, right, if we use barbershops as a way to saturate black men's lives with well-being? You have conversations with your barber. That's an asset in the community that sometimes we can, we can use as a process to, to um, saturate young men with opportunities for well-being and healing. So our shift to healing-centered engagement doesn't mean that we abandon trauma-informed care. It means we add to it. And lastly, that we have to take seriously the ways in which trauma and toxicity has an, an influence on the adult providers. This is a huge missing element in our work. We assume and presume that because we're professionally trained that somehow the toxicity doesn't impact us. That somehow we are immune from racism or somehow we're immune from the trauma that we've experienced. Or somehow that because I'm an adult, that thing that happened to me when I was 15 years old doesn't matter in my work with this other 15-year-old. Y'all hear me? So we have to take seriously our own well-being. We have to embrace our own strategies to be well. And I always say that our ability to be well is not some individual act. Our, our ability to be well is a right. We have the ability to be well even in the context of social inequality. How do we create, then, these systems that heal rather than harm? What is, what is it that we do? I have a friend that works at, at UC Berkeley, and I was explaining to her that this notion of toxicity and, and the ways in which toxicity has an influence on us. And she said that, she said um, she was a botanist at UC Berkeley. She worked in a botany, uh, a lab that did all kind of things with plants. And she said that, you know what, you're talking about toxicity. You know, we do these experiments in my lab that try to understand how plants respond to different forms of toxic gas. And she said, one time we took this, we took these plants, and what we would do is we would pump gas, different kinds of toxic gas into the chamber. And then what we would do is try to understand how those gases influence the plant. And most of the time, the plants would die. And I'd be like, I'm not talking about death. I'm talking about resiliency. And she said, no, listen, listen, what I'm, what I'm trying to get you to understand, Sean. And she said, one time we took those same plants and we put them in the same chamber. And we put, and we, instead of putting one plant, we put multiple plants in that chamber. And we pumped the same gas into that chamber. But when we pumped that gas into the chamber, the plants together reacted miraculously different, something really we hadn't seen before happen. She said, when we pumped the gas in there, the plants actually began to take different nutrients out of the soil. And they began to like process those nutrients in the soil differently. 
And the plants actually began to produce a gas in the chamber that cleaned up the gas we were pumping into it. They detoxified their environment. They cleaned up the toxicity in their own environment by working together. And I thought that that was a wonderful metaphor for our work. How do we begin to detoxify our environment with racism and homophobia and sexism and classism, all of the things that make it difficult for healing? And so as I was talking to this notion about how do we create environments that heal in really difficult situations, I was in Stockton, California last month, and a teacher, after she heard my talk, she ran up to me and she was so excited. She said, Dr. Jenright, Dr. Jenright, I'm so glad you're here. We read your book. And look, what we, she was the principal, not a teacher. She was the principal of a school. And she said three things. She said, 60% of the, the young people that come to my school have some form of trauma. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Two, we have one therapist that comes in every two weeks. Right? Three, the district nor the city will provide any funding to address this issue. And she said, we needed to address this in our own way. And she said that we took a classroom, a classroom where we normally have students reading or something, and we decided to make it into a healing spa. And she said, we, you could see that they covered the, the, uh, the lights, their blue paper over the lights to make it calm, and they put bean bags in there, and they had incense or, or um, diffusers so that it smelled uh, nice in there, and there's soft music. And she said that by placing this classroom, this place, this healing center in our school, it centered everyone so that anyone can use this place at any time. The students can come in, the teachers can come in, the custodial staff could come in, anybody could use it. There's only one requirement, is that you use it in silence. The reason I think this is an example is that it doesn't, it doesn't require, healing doesn't require a $2 million budget. <laughs> and while it may be good <laughs> to have a $2 million budget, but the urgency for our ability to create healing is now we have to act immediately. And her example provides us with ways and insights that we can begin to think about healing in our own context. So when we talk about a healing-centered approach, there are three things. Healing-centered approach involves First, healing and engaging in well-being at the individual level. What are the things that actually I need to heal from? What are the things that my exposure to toxicity is shaped by? The second is healing our relationships and our interpersonal relationships and in our communities. Communities are traumatized and institutions experience trauma. So how do we think about strategies to heal both the relationships and our collective communities so that we don't think about healing as only um, individual acts. We also have to heal our relationships, y'all. I was uh, working with a group of activists. And the second point resonated with these activists because they said that even though we fight for justice, sometimes we do it in toxic ways. And that if we're not, if we're not careful about, about healing our relationships, and if you think about your own relationships even right now, take an inventory of your relationships, your professional relationships and your personal relationships. There's probably relationships that you can actually identify as feeding you, and there's those relationships that drain you, <laughs> right? 
So our relationships and healing those relationships becoming a significant and important part of our, the ecosystem of healing. And then thirdly, we have to transform the institutions, the policies, and the systems that are causing the harm in the first place. We can't look at healing as just some isolated individual act or healing our relationships, but we also have to look at the ways in which the policies actually shape and cause harm in the first place. We use five principles at Flourish Agenda to really think about this notion of healing. And we call it karma, culture, agency, relationships, meaning, and aspirations. And I wanna quickly sort of talk about each of those because I think they have currency for our own individual process of healing, but also the ways in which we can think about healing strategies for the young people that we work with at our workplace. The first is culture, an awareness of one's own and others' humanity, ethnic history, racial and other social identities. This means that, this means that we have to ask questions about who we are in the work that we do. What does it mean to be white working in a community of color? What, is it, what does it mean to be African-American working in a white community? What does it mean? How do we interrogate these questions about identity in ways that are actually meaningful? Culture means that we lift up who we are in this work. It means that we actually identify aspects of ourselves that have currency in the, in the ability to transform our lives and have an impact on young people. The second is agency, right, right? which is the individual and the collective ability to create the change and the root causes of personal and social uh, challenges. How do we act? It's not this, how do we act to actually change these systems? And I always like to say that we can engage in both micro and macro acts of change, of agency. If you think about the environmentalist movement, we all recycle, right? The bottle, water bottles on our table will not end up in, um, will not end up in, uh, they will end up in a recycle can or a recycle process. That little act over and over has an enormous impact on our ability to have a sustainable planet. So what kind of conversations are we having about our own agency around race? What kind of conversations are we having about our own um, engagement with various forms of inequality, right? Macro acts of change are those things that we could do in our systems, right? We could change policies, we could change practices, we could change the kinds of policies that actually have a harm with young people. Third, relationships, as I already sort of mentioned. There's two kinds of relationships that we have. We have transactional relationships, and those transactional relationships are those relationships that are a function of our title. I am the principal, you are the student. I am the therapist, you are the patient. I am the executive director, you are the employee. Those are transactional relationships. And while transactional relationships are necessary and efficient, they're not enough for healing. So we need what's called transformative relationships. And tr what transformative relationships allow us to do is connect with each other's humanity. I get to know you beyond your title. I get to understand you as a human being. It means that we share some piece of ourselves. That, and when we share something about who we are, it gives permission for others to do the same. I was doing some work in, um, in a school in Texas. And they had asked us to come in and do some healing work with a staff of a school that had um, a principal that was out of control. And the superintendent didn't want to fire the principal and all this stuff was happening to this school. And they said, can you help do some healing? And I said, no, 
I can't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> we decided to go ahead and, and, and work with this school. And so we went in and we began, we set up a series of processes. And we knew that there were highly technical relationships at this school. And so we created an opportunity for them to actually exchange pieces of their humanity. And as they went around, the principal, who has really sharp elbows and very smart mouth, and nobody got along with her, not the parents, not the students, not the staff, not the central office. She went around, and as everybody was giving a piece of their humanity, the, the principal shared a piece of information that she hadn't shared before with her staff. She said, you know, I've been really difficult to work with, I know, but I want everybody to know um, that uh, six months ago I was diagnosed with cancer. And I haven't told anyone about it. Now, immediately when she said that, her staff went from anger to empathy. They saw her as a human being. And their ability to see her in a different way allowed for them to work together differently. When they were able to heal the tensions of the relationships that she had created, it allowed for them to reimagine how the possibilities for that organization or for that school. Next, meaning. Meaning is the profound discovery of who we are, where we're going, what purpose we were born to serve. Sometimes we're so close to our work. Sometimes we're so focused on our work that we never take the time to gaze and look out to understand the profound meaning that we're born to serve. Sometimes people ask me, um, why did you choose to be a professor? Or why did you choose to write? And I said, I didn't choose to work with you to be a professor. That chose me. It's a calling. It chose me. And sometimes in our work, we forget that. What meaning suggests is that we have to embrace the meaning making that we have in our work, hold it up and lift and remind ourselves of it daily so that we always are rooted in the purpose why we're serving young people. And lastly, aspirations. And this is the exploring the possibilities of our lives. I think that this is probably the most important and the most challenging. Because oftentimes, what aspiration says is that we have the right to see beyond the misery, the misery that we're working with. We have the ability to dream beyond the conditions that we're forced to engage in. My graduate students, I always tell them that the greatest consequences of oppression, of structural racism, of inequality, it's not just the blocked opportunities, but it is the destruction of our, of our ability to dream beyond those conditions. We can't imagine another way. And so the most courageous thing that we try to do is end it. We want a, reduce, we want a violence reduction strategy. But no one wants to live or send their children to a school in a violence-reduced neighborhood, right? We don't want to do that. So why do we aim, why is our aim, the highest of our aim is the reduction of misery? We strive for the thing we don't want to see. Doesn't make sense to me. So how do we then begin to have an aspirational view of our work? One that says we want to create peace. We want to create a hopeful neighbor, neighborhood. We want, we want to actually measure the things that matter, right? And so we don't only think about the reduction of misery, but we think about the creation of, our, of what we want to see. I was having a conversation with, um, again, with educators, and I, there's a tendency, again, in education that you measure a good school by 
um, the reduction of fights and lower, lower instances of bullying. And I encouraged them, I said, well, maybe you might want to think about measuring the number of hugs that young people experience every day. Maybe you want to think about the number of compliments that you've given to your staff. Maybe you can come up with a metric or a way of thinking about those things that make a difference in the quality of well-being in a, in a school or an organization that actually matter. So here's a few recommendations that we can consider in actually building a healing-centered approach. The first is that we need to increase organizational supports for the staff to integrate healing practices into the day-to-day -day engagement with children and youth, right? How do we actually build opportunities for staff to learn um, healing strategies as, only, as opposed to only thinking about um, addressing pathology? This, uh, that, it's both, uh, when we say organizational supports, yeah, that's budget, but it's also time, right? How do we think about restructuring the day? How do we think about creating innovative strategies in our budget to focus on um, the ability for adults to engage in, in wellness strategies. Second, we need to build systems of support uh, to strengthen the own social-emotional um, growth and, and well-being for the adults within the system. So we can't only think about engaging in professional development because we're more than just professionals. We're human beings. So we need to invest in personal development and growth as well. When we invest in personal growth and development, guess what shows up at work? A more effective employee, someone who's more innovative, someone who's more inspired, someone who's more effective. But we don't get it the other way around. When you learn another technique as a social worker, that doesn't necessarily contribute to the quality of life with your husband or your boyfriend or your children. But if we learn how to develop our humanity as a human beings, it, it allows us to show up in a different way in, the, in our workplace. Third. We need to develop and track measures of wellness and programs organizational-wide, right? Again, this is, not, this is an encouragement to really be thinking, not as remedial social change, but courageous social change. Remedial social change basically means we're only aiming at the reduction of things and not looking at what we want to create. So developing and tracking measures of wellness and programs and organization-wide allows us to have more courageous measures that allow what, what the, the term that says um, what, what, me, what, you, what measures matters, right? And so if we think about measures that are more asset-driven, we get the different kind of outcomes. Uh, as I said before, we need to create healing-centered strat uh, healing strategies and not trauma-informed opportunities. And that healing-centered gives us a broader political view of the root causes of, of, of harm in the first place. We need to create equity-based, SEL stands for social-emotional learning. And there's a way in which social-emotional learning says that, that academic supports are, are important, but there are emotional developments that are, are necessary for young people as well. But social-emotional learning, as it's currently being talked about, I argue that can be harmful. For example, if you teach a young person to be more grittier, Right? Grit actually says that, that somehow your inequality and how you experience it is your fault. But if you're grittier, you could just get over it. We need to be careful, as Dr. Ben talked, uh, uh, shared with us, about the language that we use. An uh, equity-based social-emotional learning strategy says that we have to take in the unique needs of the social-emotional growth for young people who are, who are experiencing harm. It means, for example, young people 
may have shame, deep shame for having dark skin and thick lips, or they may have shame if they're English language learner for their accent. This means that our social emotional learning strategy needs to attend to that, not get over your, your inequalities. Does this make sense, right? So the unique, a, a social emotional learning strategy needs to be focused on the unique needs that young people bring into our organizations. Um, we need to support leaders with transformative change over professional development, like I've already talked about. And that transformative change allows us to reimagine our lives, not just our professions, so that our humanity can show up in profound ways to create healing opportunities for young people. I'd like to end with this quote by Michelle Alexander. For those of you who don't know Michelle Alexander, um, she is um, a legal scholar. And in my view, she is the most profound legal scholar of her time since W.E.B. Du Bois. She wrote a book called The New Jim Crow that documents the ways in which we have continued forms of slavery in our society that are continuing through the prison incarceration system. And she's written for years and years and years on the topic. And two years ago, she wrote in the New York Times that she was giving up law and enrolling into the Union Theological School in New York. And the reason she said that she was no longer practicing law and she was no longer reading or writing about the legal challenges of our society is because the problems that we face as a society, she says, are not simply legal problems. And they're not even political problems or even policy problems. But at their core, America, America's problems raise profound moral questions spiritual questions about who we are, who we aim to become, and what we're willing to do now. And so I want to challenge to you, as someone challenged to me, that sometimes we ask the wrong questions. And that wrong question is, what should I do? The right question is, who should we become to transform the lives of young people? Thank you so much. Thank you.